0: Hello and welcome to Man on the Clap and Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm doing a podcast. Marking Jurgen Klopp's season. I think the most important question to start off with is. Where does Liverpool's Premier League title sit in the Premier League canon? For me, it sits below Arsenal's invincible season. Primarily because I've at times I've. Criticised Arsenal's invincible season, and I, primarily on the basis that there was an element of sort of pyrrhicness about it. It was a sort of pyrrhic victory. Yes, you've won the title, but you got knocked out of the Champions League at home to Chelsea in the quarterfinals. You didn't win uh, FA Cup. You didn't win the League Cup. It the next season on it, it didn't really lead anywhere. It was more of a stylistic achievement than it was actually something sort of far more tangible, like a, a double or you know back to back or three in a row. But I think it's more a, a question of imagination, and I think as I've got older, I've become more able to appreciate the achievement because what you had when the Premier League was started was a whole bunch of great Manchester United teams. You know, they won doubles, they won three in a row. And yet, they were unable to achieve an unbeaten season. They didn't really ever seemingly come close to it. There was always, you know, two or three defeats. You know, yeah, they could go unbeaten at home for stretches of time, but... The thing is, they didn't even ever go particularly deep into a season. There would be, you know, a defeat in the first game of the season or in September, or October. It was never as if you had a situation where they had a couple of streaks that went into February or March that gave you the impression that it was something that, that could be done in the modern era. You know, you just, people didn't start the season thinking that they could go unbeaten. The sporting press, the public, just didn't think it was something that was likely to happen. So the thing is, they weren't necessarily the most efficient team. This isn't. Yeah, they were dominant to a to a degree, in the sense that you, you're dealing now with and looking back on it with sort of hindsight retrospectively that that Premier League was far more balanced and it was less stratified. So the thing is, is that they weren't winning huge amounts of games. Or well, really, what they were doing was, and because their points total is not anything particularly massive to write home about. You know, they didn't win the title by streets. They just kept, you know, a, a decent gap, and eventually became a foregone conclusion that they were going to win the league. So really, what it was it was almost as if they sacrificed a couple of wins, and. You know, instead of losing a couple of games, they just drew more. But counterintuitively, what you're talking about is that the draws show the psychological difficulty that as the streak got further and further, once you get into, once you cross the new year, once you're into February, once you get to, then, then the milestone starts to sort of kick in. Once you get to Easter, the idea is, okay. you've got lots of games in Easter, that'll be the time when, if you're going to drop a game, or if there's a title race, or, you know, someone acting like a spoiler, a Spurs, a United, Chelsea, West Ham, all the London derbies that you have in that sort of time period, and then the media starts to kick in, and the pressure... And also the fact that that's also set against the title. Because it wasn't as if they were fifteen points clear and they could just focus on being undefeated. They were still into the Champions League, well into the back end of the second half of the season. So really what it was is it was the discipline and commitment required to not to lose, to maintain defensive standards. So in all of those draws, any one of those could have been the one. And you know, even if you're 1-0 up in the 89th minute. It, all it takes is a wonder strike, a penalty, a deflected goal. The, the chances there were so many opportunities for it to go wrong. Even that game thirty-eight of the season, that could have been when you've. And the thing is, you It's never going to really happen again. It's not going to be something that happens year after year after year. You know, it, it's completely different to win a load of games on the front foot, knowing that yeah you'll lose the odd game, but you'll win so many that. You know, sort of like the Man United teams have been doing. Yeah, Man united of that those eras got more points than Arsenal did that year, but that was easy. There was no, you know, external pressure on them. Yes, they'd lost. Therefore, you just need to win the next ten in a row, which is not really what Arsenal did. You know, it, it's a little bit like if you compare it to a sort of different sport, the sort of pressure that was on, you know, Joe DiMaggio when he had his hit streak. When it just basically became, then what you did, you looked at the front page of the newspaper and saw whether DiMaggio had a hit or not. And every single game, once it was getting close to the record, once he'd broken the record, was the situation where you were constantly looking. In other words, if you're, you know, it becomes an issue. Oh, he's had his first three at bats, he's 0 for 3, it's the seventh inning. How many more chances is he going to get? It's the ninth inning, he needs to get a hit. And the sort of pressure that would come from the crowd. You know when Ted Williams hit four hundred, he goes into the last you know there was two games double headed to finish the season, and technically speaking he was at you know three nine nine point nine nine five I think something like that and so yes, it would round up to four hundred, but then you know he played he got the hit, and that means yet not only it's not a statistical rounding up, it's going to be over four hundred. And you know obviously, at that point you can sit, you know Boston didn't have anything in those two games. No one would blame him, but not only did he carry on playing that game, he played the next game and started absolutely annihilating it. So not just ending the season with a you know, rounding up to a statistical 400, he ended up hitting 406. And that's the pressure you go in. So those last few games, knowing that you've done you've done the hard work. But if you fail now, you're unlikely to have another chance where you're going to hit 400. You just don't hit 400 every single year. And that becomes more of a challenge in the actual physical act. Ted Williams was fantastic at hitting a baseball. So was Joe DiMaggio. The Arsenal team you know, that were, were invincible were a very good football team. But it's completely different when you have that level of external pressure. Which is really when you it's a bit like when you then look at Leicester's title. If you compare Leicester's title with Liverpool's, Liverpool were a much better team. Defensively, much better team. Offensively, more interesting, you know, played better football. But what you had was is that Leicester had a lack of resource. It was a season where Everything had to go right. They couldn't have many injuries. because so They didn't have a huge amount of depth. You know they had to make you know the the tactical reject. In other words, basically the Leicester league title is two different, almost two different hemispheres. At the first half, where they're playing great football, you've got Vardy scoring, went on that sort of goal scoring streak. You have Riyad Mahrez, You had a Kante, and they were just a fun, happy team. For, you know in the top four you know close enough you know possibly leading but the expectation was is that the the underlying statistics were showing that eventually they were creating too they were giving away too many chances they weren't quite tight enough at the back eventually if they carried on playing that way for the whole year they were going to probably finish in the top 4 but they weren't really going to win the title eventually they would fall away and really that's where the second hemisphere where basically Ranieri sort of come January basically realises the only way we can do is if we if is if we tighten up, if we go a little bit more defensive, if we then use Vardy on the counter-attack. Yes, we won't be quite as fluent, but if we just keep grinding out the results, and if everything goes our way, we could be title winners. You know, because Leicester, you had that history of all those Wembley final defeats. You know, the sense that they'd never won the title. And then you had... So you had all this historical pressure that this was their one shot at this. You know, in other words, it wasn't going to be something they were going to be able to do next season. You had all of that global interest and that pressure on you and having to make such a huge tactical change. You know, a lot of teams wouldn't be able to do that. Especially if there's a team that hadn't had a huge amount of success. Yes, they got promoted the season before, their first season back in the Premier League. They'd just about survived relegation. And it'd really taken a, a, a hot streak at the end of the season. And so for me, they're almost on a par. Is that if you're going to do it purely on aesthetics, Liverpool were more dominant, more points, more goals, more less goals conceded, but a better side. But I think Leicester, there were so many more challenges. you know, and, and I suppose the mid-ground between that would be Antonio Conte's Chelsea, which nearly won the double. Is that what you had was is that there was, again, two different seasons. But you had the eight games where Conte starts, where Chelsea won a couple, lost a couple. And generally looked like a team that could, if they put it all together, were probably going to be somewhere around the battle for the top four. And then they go he makes the tactical change. He decides he's gonna, instead of trying to work towards British English football and you know do what English managers do and or traditional Premier League managers would do, he's like, I'm gonna do it my way, I'm gonna go with a back three, I'm gonna do this tactical review literally on the fly. Yeah, you know, this is what we're doing, you know, mid- you know, it's a midweek decision, you're playing Saturday, back three, midfield four. And then suddenly, everything just clicks. And the thing is, so in other words, for Chelsea to win the league, they gave themselves absolutely no room for manoeuvre after those first eight games. If they were going to win the title, they were literally going to have to be gangbusters for 30 straight games. And that's what they did, which is, again, an incredible achievement. Now, obviously, the Chelsea team had far greater resource bigger deeper squad but again i think what it comes down to is the key question then is what makes a team truly great and i think it comes down to there's it has to be a wider challenge than simply just winning you know there are lots of you know the teams that tend to win are teams that have resource the teams that have good players good structures well-run outfits. The teams that have historically won. So the Yankees tend to get into the playoffs. The Dodgers, since they've been taken over, go to the playoffs. You know, Manchester United are always there or thereabouts. When you know, Man City got taken over, they have. You know, Juventus, Barca. All of those outfits, that's a historical. Real Madrid, by Munich. I think in the end, well, take the, let's say... you're going to say one of the great baseball teams well there's there's two i suppose in recent modern times you're looking at the 98 yankees and the 01 mariners now the 98 yankees won 114 games curb stomped everybody in the playoffs battered the padres won the title one of the greatest teams of all time whereby the 01 mariners won 116 regular season games so two more than the 98 yankees but they got knocked out by the Yankees in the playoffs, in the first round of the playoffs. They're both great teams. I mean, to win 116 games out of 162-game baseball season is an incredible achievement. You have to be a fantastic team. Everything has to go right. It's a huge grind of a season. But if you get knocked out in the playoffs, and yes, the playoffs is a crapshoot, but the point is, is that the 98 Yankees did it. The 0-1 Mariners didn't, which is why the Yankees, all, that team is always considered that much closer to greatness. And I think that's the point. You're either making history or you're battling history. There has to be an element of you know, narrative arc to it. You know, and the point is, it's not just the fact that the 98 Yankees were so amazing. Is that the the teams of the late nineties were a dynasty the New England Patriots? That's when you think you know the Ferguson dynasty, and I think that's where the Liverpool season kind of peters out in the sense that it makes a it's a, it's a decent narrative arc. So you know they win the Champions League, they go they're oh so close to you know winning the league as well. But, you know, they get picked at the post by Man City. And then this was the year, so there was no outside distractions. There was no, you know, finally Jurgen Klopp had won something for Liverpool. And it wasn't the League Cup, it wasn't the FA Cup. It was the European Cup. It's a big one for Liverpool fans. It now adds to their sterling European Cup Champions League history. But now everything was in place. The players, the squad, the stadium, the owners, the backroom staff, there was nothing to stop them. Yes, there was going to be challenges, but there was a sense that once you looked at Man City's kind of squad depth, and it wasn't quite as strong. They hadn't replaced Vincent Company. You thought, mm, if if Laporte has an injury, if the goalkeeper goes down, there's a potential that they could be in trouble. You know, Chelsea have a transfer ban, Tottenham you know, were worn out from the Champions League. There was a sense that this was going to be the year. But once the the, the league started and Man City faltered, really by October, it, you've just thought Liverpool are going kind to of have won the league. And really by Christmas, it was pretty much a nailed uncertainty. And what we have to do when we're sort of grading plot is we have to make sure we're marking on the curve. Because we're in the the age of dominance now. Where, you know, when we're talking about the Arsenal Invincibles, when we're talking about some of the great United teams of the late 90s, you know, I'm going to mention a little bit later on in the podcast, the 99-2000 Man United team that got to 90 points when they got to 90 points, that was that was an insane level of dominance. In other words, people were winning the title with early 70s, mid-70s. For someone to then just absolutely obliterate the league to the point where you're 15, 20 points clear of everybody else in that era was fantastic. Now, if you get 90 points, that's a tight league season. Now, the point is, if you realistically want to win the title you are looking at somewhere between 95 to 100 points. 95 puts you in the conversation, puts you into April in the the league. 100 puts you on, you know, game 37, game 38, last game of the season, title decider kind of situation, which is just incredible. You know, any way of getting to 99, you know, 100 points is an incredible amount of victories. You would have, you know, it's 33 wins, one draw, and... You know, four defeats, you know, whichever way you marry it up, even with four defeats, it means that for the rest of the season, you have to be pretty much perfect. And I think what we need to sort of look into is, are we seeing, because now they've won the title and that was inevitable after the, the coronavirus interlude you knew they were going to win the title. You knew Man City were going to drop some points. You knew that in the seven, eight, nine games left, Liverpool were going to hammer somebody. It was a foregone conclusion. You know, outside of a points deduction, they were going to have won the title. There was nothing riding on it. It was just a case of, are you going to win it at home? Are you going to win it away? Is it going, oh, as actually did happen, Man City slip up and you're actually watching it on at home on TV. And yet, since they've won the title, you've had the loss against Arsenal in midweek, you had the Man City game. And I think there's a question mark to say, are we seeing the gentle decline phase of this team set in? And I think there's Liverpool fans will be listening in on this saying, shit screaming at the thing, no. You know, yes, there was always going when you've had such a fantastic season. Once you've won the league title, there is an element of drop off. You know, there's going to be an element of regression to the mean. You know, they'd had so many, you know, fantastic results. You know, the Villa game is probably you where you know going into the last ten minutes they're losing away, away Villa putting eleven men behind the ball. Not only did you pull out the equaliser, which happened at 89-90 minutes, you then gone up the other end again and scored in another winner in injury time. And and that was really a testament to the, the team's fitness and application. you know while you can maybe argue that this season and the season before so in other words they're going to basically nearly average 100 points for you know 76 league games and yeah they won the champions league they won the league they won the world club cup and it might be the, the you know the side at their peak but there's no real obvious reason to suggest that liverpool can't maintain this there, there's no older players that you think are going to drop off n- you know, now, you know, Jordan Henderson has got better. You know, Winaldrum, you've got room for improvement with, you know, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, Trent, Andy Robertson. You know, you've got Joe Gomez. like The front three are all in their late 20s. There's nothing that really jumps out of you to suggest that, you know, you've got enough youth players coming through from what we've seen this season. You know, they've still got transfer money. Yeah, the manager is set, there is no obvious issues with the squad, you know, there's no problems on the infrastructure side of things, they've got the new training ground, the ownership. You know, really the challenge is whether the chasing patch the chasing pack can catch up, not whether Liverpool are in you know terminal decline as an, as a team. But I think from my perspective, I think it's interesting when you start looking into it. From the the sense that, I think the failure to sign Timo Werner hints that there's money, but it's not the sort of money that is they're going to be wanting to concentrate on a marquee attacking addition. I mean, the player I think they've been linked with most recently and you know, seemingly a transfer that I think is going to happen is you know, Thiago Alcantara from Bayern Munich, but. He's twenty nine. There's an injury history. He's a classy player, and it's, but is it really a huge upgrade on their midfield, or is he more of a sort of complementary depth piece? In other words, yeah, he can pass the ball. He's got a little bit more rounded edges than sort of the three that they've been mainly playing this season. But it's not someone that you know. If you were Jordan Henderson, if you were. Wynaldrum, well, you wouldn't be necessarily panicking that you're about to be, you know, lalaned into, you know, the, the background. I think the, the fear that with this team is, is that you've, you've now got the, the narrative arc has been almost sort of completed. You know, you've had the Champions League win, you've then had the catharsis of the title win, then what next? You know, how can this team be challenged? It, in other words, if there's not going to be a marquee addition, is there going to be a hint of staleness? You know, the point is, is that with Man City now, you have a situation where there's going to be a spending spree. You know, the ban has been overturned. The fact that you know they had a world class set of lawyers, it's not a surprise that eventually they they've got their way. So there's gonna be this huge boost from the spending spree. You know, the thing is is that now the Real Madrid second leg, for them it is just in the Champions League, is just now a complete free hit. If they go through and win, super duper, great chance to, you know, win the Champions League and finally, you know, take City to that level. If they get knocked out, let's say Real Madrid come up with a wonder performance in the second leg. You've then got next year. You don't have the ban. You've got all of this money. You can definitely improve. There's room for improvement in Man City if you get another defensive midfielder in. If you get another couple of defenders, even another attacking player, you're you're going to be better. You and the you know, the the ceiling for this team could be a hundred plus points. You know, there's nothing to stop you know, and the fact that they've had these these dominating stretches, the, the sense that they've got better in Europe, they could really just try. They could go for a quadruple. There is really nothing to stop that team doing that. They have all of the pieces then necessary. You know, you you're going to have a huge amount of expectation coming out of you know Stamford Bridge because you know they've made the Werner signing, which is a signing that really the the. The intimation was is that Vernon was considered, you know, a, a, someone who could definitely challenge the front three. In other words, whoever they, if they were going to sign someone, it would have to be of that level of quality. And that's something that Klopp would have loved to have got. But they have, they didn't even really get into. You know, they basically pulled up as soon as they found out that Chelsea were willing to throw, you know, idiot money at it. So there's gonna be a sense of improvement. in you know, Manchester United are coming up. They're going to spend some coin as well. And, you know, their players have you know finally sort of hit the straps. You've got Greenwood, you've got Martial, you've got Rashford. There's definitely going to be, you know, they, they're going to improve to hell. You've even got Spurs with Mourinho. You've got Arteta at Arsenal. It's going to be probably a much more stronger, you know, you've even got Leeds coming in with Biasla. It's going to be probably a more competitive Premier League next season than this year. And the point... So, really, at the moment, what you're saying if you're Liverpool is that you're going to be relying on a superior understanding. And there's advantageous elements to that because you're going to have an abbreviated pre-season. In other words, we're just going to have literally finished the season in late July. You know, a couple of teams are still going to be playing You know, playing around in Europe. And then, a few weeks... We're all going to be back for a very short, very truncated, you know, you're not going to have those long sort of pre-season trips to America or Asia or Australia. It's going to be quite, it's going to be a bit old school. It's just going to be really the training ground, a few local friendlies, and then, you know, basically start of September, you're off and running. So, you know, the problem that Lampard's going to have really is that, you know, Verner, possibly if they sign Hiverts, Ziach, is going to be a, qu- a quick turnaround. But even that, there's still it's going to be an element of a sense of stasis. You know, their last meaningful game was really Atletico Madrid in March. You know, you there's been mistakes. You know, against City and against, and up against Arsenal. And really, I think there's an abiding sense that this season was really the peaks in terms of the squad depth, injuries, form. There was the late goals the unstoppable sense of momentum the absence of defeats you know the consistency and overall balance of the team you know it, it's it's intrinsically unsustainable to maintain such standards that's the thing the the window for a truly a truly elite season's they're vanishingly small I mean, you, you know, take the you know the 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 2000 manchester united team they were, they were much more dominant in the league than their 98-99 counterparts, but it doesn't take away the fact that the '98-99 treble-winning United team, you know, they were under far greater pressure, and they produced a, a true season for the ages. And I just don't think that Liverpool's Premier League title winning season matches up. You know, the '99 treble team faced exhaustion. And they faced challenges on all fronts that Liverpool didn't face. Liverpool really played their reserve teams in the cup this year. Didn't really give much thought at all to them. I mean, even the United ninety nine treble winning team reached the quarter finals of the, the League Cup, and you know they beat yeah you know, they lost to Spurs, who eventually went on to win the tournament. And even then, I remember at the time beating Man Utd, Even if it was you know, pr- you know primarily their reserve team, it was still a great result. The team still had to play really well at their best to even you know n- well, not narrowly beat them beat three one, but you know they were down to ten men against a great Arsenal team in the semi final FA Cup semi final replay, and it required extra time. Yeah, you know, you'd had the situation. Not only were they you know, battling. Against Arsenal in the FA Cup in the league, and that was just huge momentum. If you lost that game, the possibility is you might not win the league. That might have been the the, the the bit that pushed Arsenal to win the league, and maybe United drop off. Maybe that was the time when they might have just said, Look, we've won the league so many times, but we've never really, you know, this may be the year that we focus on the Champions League. Maybe if you win the Champions League in the FA Cup. Uh, and the thing is, is that you look at it, you, you, they were hampered by suspensions in the final against Bayern Munich. They were generally outplayed. You know, you had this epic semi-final with Juve. It was, the, you know, the second leg at the Deli Alpi, where it was basically Roy Keane versus, you know, the Stadio Deli Alpi. You know, the history, you know, the fact that Juventus were, you know, considered it for long periods of time, the prime European team, you know. Serie A was still, you know, you know, at its, not quite at its zenith, but it was still considered the sort of gold standard European league. You know, you had United's recent history at that period of time of falling short when they lost to an upstart Dortmund team in 97. You know, the sense just people didn't imagine in 1999 that you could win the league, the FA Cup, and the Champions League. You just, people just didn't imagine. Not only that it could happen, or that, you know, that a Spanish team could do it, or that an Italian team could do it. No more you know, that if it was going to happen, it was gonna be made one of those out one of the country, you know, maybe a Real Madrid or a Juventus or an AC Milan. I don't think there was an expectation that there was going to be an English team that was going to be the one that would do make that achievement. The sense that English teams generally won the Cup Winners' Cup, or they had a bit of a UEFA Cup run. They generally hadn't made a huge dent in the Champions League. And also, the, the, the wider sense that in utilising the full extent of their squad, you know, Ole, Teddy, Dwight York, Andy Cole, you know, Ro- you know, Ronnie Johnson, Henningberg, you know, Phil Neville, all of those kind of bits and pieces, even Jesper Blimpquist in the finals. You know, the fact that Ferguson was really forging a new trail. You know, the teams that were great before then, the, you know, Johan Cruyff's Barcelona, Rigo Sacchi's AC Milan, Marcelo Lippi's Juventus, they didn't have that level of squad. They had talent, but they didn't utilise it. They didn't need to. You know, they were just great 11s with a few, you know, bits and pieces players that were on the bench. And the thing is that you're dealing with a situation where the coppa italia and the coppa del rey were just relatively unimportant in comparison with the fa cup and in those domestic structures they didn't have a third uh, you know, a league cup which makes you know the the treble winning teams achievements that much more important and that much more special because it really was you know effectively pushing the limitations of the sport mm. So I suppose the question is is whether Liverpool's title win, whether you personally believe that this season was their magnum opus, that that it was the culmination of years of Klopp assiduously, you know, inculcating his football philosophy at Melwood. In other words, yeah, the 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 early Jurgen Klopp teams weren't, you know, weren't great because the squad he inherited had weaknesses, it had flaws, but he just spent years that if they were whatever he had, he was going to work with, and he was going to teach them his way of playing. And either you followed that, if you didn't, you were out, sacko, gone. You know, you just dropped off the face of the earth. Wherever you go, it doesn't matter. It's just not going to be here. And you know, you then had it was, and this was fortified by you know, key marquee signing. And so, really, as I have said, it produced an unparalleled stretch of winning over the past couple of years. You know, the draws that the season before that had scuppered them disappeared, and that was in a flurry of late goals. You know, that's always a sign of a great team. Is how you know, whether you can keep that up going, and whether you can just have that belief that somehow you will overcome against the odds. But it's important that we set this against you know the backdrop of dominance across the continent, you know whether that be it PSG, Juventus, Real, Barca, and Bayern Munich. They've all smashed their respective records for league points in a season. So really, there's no surprise that this is the same trend as as you know coming to the Premier League. But you know, really, what from October onwards, Liverpool were out. F- right favourites. Man City were fatally flawed defensively. They were never going to pull up the sort of run that they would need, which would be sort of like 18, 19 wins out of 20. You know, they just didn't have the defensive depth. There'd been a drop-off. And really, as soon as they worked out that Liverpool that this Liverpool team were either going to match what they'd done, sort of 97, 98 points, or they were gonna get a hundred that was the time when basically Man City worked out that if this was going to be the year that the Champions League was going to be their best opportunity for, you know, making a point and for kicking on. You know, and you looked at it, even Leicester had a kind of sort of a half hearted sort of tilt at it, but you really, you've thought, is this team, Leicester team going to be able to maintain that kind of pace? over a gruelling 38-game league season. No. They were able to do it for about 10-12 games, which, even for a third of a season, is still an incredible achievement. But, you know, when you got to that game, you know, over Christmas, you just saw that there was a golf in class. And, that you know, Leicester just wouldn't be able to do that, wouldn't be able to keep up. And I think the underlying statistics all sort of showed that Liverpool's winning run was really in some ways a a sort of short-term spike in cluster luck. In other words, their expected goals, their expected points seemed to basically say, yes, this is a really good team that is currently right now, whether you call it form, whether you call it luck, a combination, was just outperforming the the underlying kind of metrics, what they should be getting and that always happens when you know great teams always find a way of really you know outperforming but it's not something that is going to happen year after year you will have years where just everything comes together you know, it wasn't something that's going to be sustainable in the medium to long term eventually you're not always going to get 89th minute goals you know you, the, that villa game next season could well end up being a defeat even if you played the same and put the same effort in it's not always going to come off it's almost like it's sort of all a sort of chicken and the egg scenario where, you know whereby you know is it the extended excellence led teams to drop deep and to expect the inevitable late winner or that the class luck in turning defeats into draws draws into wins turns an excellent team into just an exceptional team So I think what this asks is really sort of two questions. Was this season Liverpool's opportunity for a 1999-type season, a treble-winning season? And you look at it, the decision to play the crop of younger players in the League Cup was rewarded with that thrilling win over Arsenal. And you can understand that there was a chaotic period of League play, there was the travel to Qatar. You could understand why they had made that decision. Yes, in October, we all thought Liverpool were going to win the league. But I can understand why they felt the need not to take idiot risks. Not to leave the door even a crack open. Yeah, I can understand that. Yet, by the time they played Villa, I think this had abated. This wasn't, you know, that fear was you know, unfounded. And the policy was unchanged. And it was kind of a limp exit. I and mean, they just, you know, Villa won fairly easily. And, yeah you know, the FA Cup was really a similar story. You know, you had the encouraging win over Everton with the young team. And you could understand why, because you'd had the Christmas period, lots of games back-to-back. You know, you still were kind of coming down a little bit from the you know, Qatar. You, again... If you can get away with it, and they did, I mean, in the first sort of ten, fifteen minutes of the Everton game, Everton probably had, you know, more than enough chances to be 2 3 0 no up and have the game put to bed. And it was a classic sort of example where a team because Everton have had such an awful record at Liv- against Liverpool in general, and specifically at Anfield, is that they just didn't quite have the the application. In other words, they had all the advantages, they were older. Yeah, fitter, more experienced against a sort of relatively callow Liverpool team. And yet, where they could have annihilated... In other words, if Liverpool gone 3-0 down after you know, 15 minutes in that game with an inexperienced outfit, there is no way. There's not enough subs, there wasn't enough experience on the bench that was going to be able to turn that around. And no one would have complained, because Liverpool had put out a weakened team. But once they hadn't taken those chances... You know effectively they you know everton never quite managed to get their heads back in the game, and as soon as they you know the, the young kids scored that wonder strike, Everton really kind of just fell apart but then u n had by the time you had the Shrewsbury game, yeah you know, they were nailed on to win the title, and they were really lucky on that day not to be knocked out there and then you know. and. Uh, it would have been just such an embarrassing result to really lose to, you know, a, a team that was struggling at the time. Yeah, yeah, they they put out a weakened team, but I think that would have definitely tarnished the season because it would have been, it would have been almost like the you know, sort of Ronnie Rafford Hereford style shock. You know, it, it was on national television late on a Sunday afternoon. Big. A big television audience. It would have been something that would have... you know. It would be the sort of thing that would have been shown year after year in highlight clips. It would have been, you know, the FA Cup is not dead. The magic is still there and all the rest of it. And I definitely think that it would have been... Everyone would say about that year, yeah, Liverpool won the title. And also got knocked out of the FA Cup by Shrewsbury Town. That would have really... That would have... That would be the sort of way how that season would be bookended in the canon... And yet the replay, Klopp didn't attend, and the first team didn't attend. You know, yeah, it was a routine win, but you know it just seemed to suggest that the FA Cup just wasn't particularly important that season. And, you know, the you know next tie they, they got knocked out of the by the FA Cup limply again. It was another mix and match Liverpool's team. and, and it just It just never really got going. I remember watching that game, and you just sense that you know they 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 kind of brought on for me. You know, they brought on a couple of other players, but they just didn't really. You know, they just, they were sort of going through the motions, I think. And you you would think well, there was no pressure on the league. They would already won that. You know, they had you know hadn't had a particularly you know, manically difficult Champions League in terms of the group stages, you know, so they didn't have any pressure that the, the treble-winning United team had. And they had exactly the same amount of, sort of resource that, you know, the Man City team that won the domestic treble did. So why couldn't they have put in more effort? It's, you know, why did Klopp not prosecute this season with, to my mind, greater alacrity? You no, know, I think if you start comparing the the treble-winning United team with this year's Liverpool team, I think there's there's a golfing class in terms of the teams played and results. You know, in the group stage of the Champions League, United faced a really strong Barcelona team. You know, they played Juventus in a sort of epic two-legged semi-final. You know, you have Bayern Munich in the final, who were close to their peak. And the thing is they were able to get defining results away from home, the three-all draw at the new camp, the you know, Delhi Alpi where, you know, they were behind you know, they literally you know Roy Keane was absolutely at his zenith. And yet, you know, if you look at Liverpool even last season, you know, when they won the Champions League, their defining result was the destruction of Bar- Barcelona at Fortress Anfield. Yeah, if we're gonna look at this result retrospectively. It's a dysfunctional Barcelona team, you know, really mired in an inexorable decline. You know, the, in, you know, when they beat Bayern Munich, it was a team with an unsuitable coach, who was fired early the next season, and then there was an immediate upswing. The second they got rid of Kovac, suddenly Bayern Munich, under Hansi Flick, have just exploded. And you know, they've got a fantastic chance of winning the Champions League this year. You know, they're probably, at this stage, presumptive favourites. You know, you, you know, in the final, you had a Tottenham team whose players and coach were exhausted. The manager, you know, coach and manager was sacked early the next season. You know, even when you consider the final and and the, the run at the Club World Cup it's it's really notable the lack of a standout performance. You know, they needed extra time in the final of the Club World Cup. They held Tottenham off at, at a distance. You know, once they had the penalty in the first few seconds, once Mo Salah scores that goal, they really were content to just, you know, effectively it it sort of almost had the the, the feeling of a Floyd Mayweather Junior fight. In other words, he he wasn't going to knock you out. Liverpool weren't going to knock Spurs out. They were just going to hold them off and wait to see if Tottenham could land that knockout punch, which they never were able to. I mean, even if you look at the Barcelona result, it was more a testament to the game situation. You know, They'd had the dismal 3-0 away mauling. It wasn't a statement of intent. It was that's the only way we can get through is to batter them 4-0 at Anfield. They've done it before under Klopp. Yeah, the Dortmund game a few years ago in the Europa League. You know, it wasn't in the vein of Arrigo Saki's, you know, AC Milan's 4-0 destruction of the, you know, Barcelona team in the 94 Champions League final, which was really the passing of the torch between, you know, the as the absolute peak quality, brilliant European side, it went from Barcelona to AC Milan on that night. You know, even in this year's Champions League for Liverpool, there, there was no real major upswing in performance. It They lost in Naples again. You know, they spurned a 3-0 lead at home to you know, RB Salzburg and they required a late second-half win. You know, and it, it culminated in a really strangely muted... Sort of second round exit to Atletico, you know, with a standard narrow way defeat, and really paired with this the first failure of Fortress Anfield in the Klopp era, the first time that they had just you know they did all the pomp and circumstance, they had all of the, you know, the atmosphere at Anfield, they had the, the flags, they had. The expectation was is that you know Atletico had dropped off from where they had been when they got to the final. And lost both times against Real. You know, that the stalwarts of the first great Diego Simeone team had all moved on. They spent some money, but, you know, there there wasn't, it wasn't quite an El Cholo team. And yet really, they just, you know, they showed fight determination. They showed they had something on the break. And, and Liverpool never really got going. had a couple of opportunities, but the back door was always half open. And it's no real surprise that they got knocked out, because over the two legs, Atletico deserved it. But I think what was interesting was really the relative lack of dissension from the Liverpool fans. You know, the domestic Liverpool fans and internationally. I suppose some of this can be really put down to the narrative formed in the aftermath of the Madrid victory. You know, as I've said, it's almost like a precursor to an all-out assault on the league. You know that had become the obsession, due to you know obviously the thirty-year gap in titles on Merseyside. I think the abundance of of overcaution shown by Klopp and even Jordan Henderson to an extent. I mean, Jordan Henderson gets all of this credit, you know, for being this old school kind of gruff fighter, you know, who is absolutely a driving people on, is the real leader and yet at no point has he seemingly met, said anything that about, you know, what well, why don't we win the double this year? Why don't we try and turn this into a treble? Why you know, I want to play every single game. You know, I think I was reading something in The Athletic about Klopp and in The Guardian and kind of about, you know, the sort of behind the scenes of it. And that, you know, really why he decided, he'd given the players that, that kind of week off, kind of few days off, which ended up falling, you know, right slap bang in the middle of the Shrewsbury replay. And in the end, he was like, no, everyone gets the day off anyway, doesn't matter, I'm going to play the kids, I'm not even going to turn up. And that, how the players were kind of very appreciative. And yet, it, it's to me. It just sends the wrong message out. It was saying, "I don't care if if Shrewsbury go to Anfield and win. I'm not even going to be there. the thing." Is okay. Maybe he doesn't have to coach because as yeah, he makes a, a relatively decent point in that he hasn't really coached a lot of these players, and actually, you know, the the the, the coach that does it on a day to basis is probably better to be in a dugout, but. I think you should at least be there. It's not as if you're going to do anything more than sit out there just to show that you're actually involved. But, you know, he was making a point to the FA, and it was like, I just can't imagine 1999 Ferguson doing the same thing. I don't think he could just... You know, especially when he was that much further on in the Cup. You know, this wasn't the third round. This one, you know, this there was especially if Ferguson knew that the league was wrapped up and that the FA Cup was really just, you know, there for the taking. I think Ferguson would have just would have said, "Look, I don't care. We're not losing to this outfit. We were lucky not to lose to them in the first place. The reserve team had their chance to finish the job off at Shrewsbury. We're going to get some big guns and we're going to finish this lot off and then we're going to win the FA Cup and we're going to turn this into a double winning season." And I think it outlines to me a conservative streak in Klopp's use of his political capital, and the point is he has the most political capital of any manager in the league. You know, nobody else is as beloved. I mean, yeah, you might say Eddie Howe, but there's going to be people you know dissent in the ranks if they go down. You know, Sean Dyche. Yeah, but the same point is is that, is that what Sean Dyche? His look, his, I suppose, philosophy ends up with with people criticising, whereby, and it's very much a them against us kind of situation, whereby I think for Klopp and Liverpool, it's far more positive. Yeah, you have pressing Klopp ball. Sort of marriage between all, all of the things that make Liverpool Liverpool and how, you know, his history in terms of being the Dortmund manager, really the sister team of Liverpool and all the rest of it. I mean, the only person that really I suppose, vaguely sort of comes close might be Guardiola, but he just loses political capital exponentially with every single Champions League failure. Every time he doesn't deliver the Champions League to Man City, like a certain amount of his power sort of dissolves. You know, for me, what it comes down to is they had to make the season more interesting. So if they'd sacrificed the undefeated season, which, you know, was given up pretty tamely at Watford anyway, in pursuit of a potential double or a treble domestically, And it's almost, to me, it seems to be a sort of a trend. You know, it's a similar sort of situation to the season before. When they got to 97 points, but that involved seven draws. And that, to me, indicated really a stubborn desire not to lose the league, rather than risking it to win it. So, in other words, they didn't go for the undefeated season. They, They were very... Cautious. They didn't sit there and say, OK, you know, it had literally had they in sort of February, you know, the turn of the year or when they got knocked out of the, the Cups and all they had and the Champions League and all they had was the league. Had they sat there and after the, the Madrid game gone, you know what, we're going to go undefeated. That is, our, we're going to win the league and we're going to do it undefeated and we're going to break the points record. We're going to basically smash the invincible season and we're going to smash the points record that's what we're going to do anything that if we don't do that then we have failed in some way but they didn't and i think they were actually i think the players were relatively happy that that meant that they were going to win the league and they weren't going to have to worry about you know because they were going to win the league maybe 33 34 games in that kind of situation early on let's assume that the pandemic never happens and if they'd, And if they then put that extra pressure on them, that would mean well into May, they were still going to have to be hard at it, and everyone in the league would have loved to be the one that denied them the invincible season. And instead, they lost 3-0 at Watford, which meant it didn't really matter, they were still going to win the league by absolutely miles, possibly even break the, the points record, and it would be a lot easier. What does this say about the relationship between Klopp and the Liverpool fans? It's it's a wonderful relationship. You know, they both feed off of each other. But I think there's elements of toxicity settling in on the edges. You know, it's a mutually beneficial partnership. But if you look at what what I've described as sort of Klopp's Innate conservatism as a sort of you know footballing general, and then you match up with his sort of immaculate social positions and understanding of the club, and I think that conservatism has seeped a little bit into the fan base. And the thing is, is that we, we we've read a lot and we've there's been a lot focused on the the history. Now that they've finally back where they feel they belong, they've won the title, they're the best team in England. And the thing is, is that that tradition was was basically winning at all costs, and it was winning big. And it's a hard-won tradition. To do that from you had to then be brilliant over decades, not years, not you know, windows of opportunities. You're talking decades. Late 60s, 70s, 80s. And that, you know, that was manager after manager. That was the boot room. That was everything that Shankly, Fagan, you know, Paisley, Gleesh all stood for. And it means something. And yet, really, this season has almost become a slightly sort of Laramosh victory lap. And to me, I feel that they've squandered this potentially generational season. Now, I understand the emotion for local and familial generational fans. In other words, people that grew up in Liverpool and are Liverpool fans. I get where that emotion comes from. And if you're a generational, familial Liverpool fan, in other words, if your granddad was a Liverpool fan, regardless whether that's Surrey, whether that is Ireland, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, London, home counties, Southwest, East Anglia, wherever you will, you know, come from, you know, internationally. If that is your family history of being Liverpool fans, I get that. I get that your proximity towards winning the title is more visceral. And that you felt the sense of loss that came from the decline of the Red Empire, and it was always more palpable because you then have it was then overtaken by the Ferguson dynasty. I get why winning the league title is so important because you grew up, and your your or your dad or your granddad or your uncle, whoever got you into it, or your auntie or your mum or your sister, whoever got you into supporting Liverpool. There's a generation that were just used to winning the league every single year. That was just what Liverpool did. They didn't just win the league. They'd win the FA Cup. They'd win the League Cup. They'd do a double. They'd win the league. They'd win the European Cup. That was just what Liverpool stood for. And then you lost that. And it just felt like you know it would never happen. There was years when you finished seventh. There was the, the Hicks and Gillette era and the nightmare of you know, possibly going bankrupt. There was all of this going on. I can imagine why you just wanted to win the league. The league was everything. Once you did it, you would then have all of that pent-up emotion and celebration. But for brand fans, this is far less apparent. And it's important at this stage to define what a brand fan is you know, as a concept. To me, essentially being a football fan is an emotional investment. And that for the majority of fans, it's an investment that can go up and down. You know, depending on relegations, decline, bad owners, administration. You know, when Leeds reached the Champions League semi-final in the sort of early you know, 2000s, it would have been unimaginable that they would collapse to the extent of spending multiple years in League One and 16 straight years out of the top flight. You just wouldn't have imagined it. You wouldn't have imagined at that moment when you're you know going into the semi-final of the Champions League having got through the semi-finals of the UEFA Cup having been in the top 3 having you know fought for the title having all of these great players all of these fantastic results in Europe it just wouldn't have seemed conceivable. What was going to happen in two or three years. That it was all going to fall apart. Yeah, when you support a brand club. And a brand club is really Juventus. It's Barca. It's Real. It is Bayern Munich. You know, New York Yankees. New England Patriots. Under sort of, Brady Belichick. Your emotional investment is protected as if it almost literally is whatever you put in you will still have at the end of it. You know, you're never going to have relegation. You are never going to finish in the lower half of the table. It's rendered effectively impossible. Even if you did, it would be such a disaster and so much would happen that you would then immediately be put straight back to where you you know where you belong. Yeah, there's heartache when you're a brand fan, but it's heartache from finishing second. It's heartache from losing the Champions League semi-final, a Champions League final, an FA Cup final. It's you know when you've won the league, but then you lose the FA Cup final, so it's not a double. It's that kind of pain. It is not 14th, five years in a row, where you're just looking over your shoulder at potential relegation, and you are just a light years away from your rivals. It doesn't make... Brand fans aren't any less of a fan. But what it needs, what happens, is it fundamentally changes the nature of that fandom. And the best and classic example is Manchester United fans with Sir Alex Ferguson. Their demanding need for continual silverware effectively placed pressure on him to deliver. In other words, it was, what have you done for us lately? Oh, you won the league. That's great. Did you win the league the year before? Have you won it three years in a row? Can you win it four years in a row? If you haven't, why haven't you won it four years in a row? Why haven't we won the Champions League for five years? Why haven't we, you know, why aren't we dominating in Europe? Why haven't we won the League Cup? Why haven't we had, it's that kind of pressure. And the thing is, as a result, the relationship was one of respect. And it really only became sort of venerational upon his retirement. In other words, one of the my favourite things reading about Manchester United fans, um around about the time that he was um retiring, was the sense that actually Man United fans didn't really love Sir Alex Ferguson. And I was sitting there thinking, well that's just unbelievably ridiculous. Look at everything he has done for you. How can you not love this person? And it, it's an interesting dynamic. It and I've always wondered whether it was partially because in some ways the success was almost more about Sir Alex Ferguson than it was Manchester United and so when you took Sir Alex Ferguson out then the last few years for Manchester United have been an absolute not a disaster but it's just they've just gone down a, a notch and for a lot of United fans there's that kind of horrible sinking feeling that they're about to go through what Liverpool fans have gone through for the last 30 years, that you know, winning a title may well be 10-15 years into the future. And the thing is with brand Manchester United fans, they weren't particularly interested in Manchester as a place. But they retained an intense adulation for winning. You know, for wanting it. And in some ways that drove the creation of the commercial international backbone that was the was the the foundations of the United Juggernaut's ability to continue for so long. As much as United needed Ferguson, they were both reliant on the brand fans. And I suppose the same question needed to be asked of Liverpool brand fans. Have you, brand fan, pushed both Klopp and the players to utilise what could have easily been the peak year because in, in three or four years we might have to look back at this and say this was the year that everything worked. That afterwards there might be been some staleness, there's some injuries, you've got the African Cup of Nations so you're going to lose Mania, you're going to lose Salah for a little bit. Have you pushed them to their bestest? Or have you allowed them to, to coast? And I think... In a performative celebration. So in other words, you, everyone's acting so joyful. But the, it's out of keeping with actually the kit club's great history. Ask yourself, would Shankly, would Fagan, would Paisley... Would they have been 100% impressed with the way how Liverpool finished this season? Getting beat 4-0 at Man City. I mean, getting absolutely annihilated at Man City. Giving up those dopey goals against... Arsenal, and then not coming back and not winning that game, or even drawing that game. You know, doing nothing in the Cups, being poor in Europe. And I think there's a point that they would have just been somewhat disappointed, that they would have felt that, you know, that just winning the title wasn't quite enough. And that in some ways was almost a weakness, that you would just, oh, you're not keeping up with what Liverpool really should mean, which is... Pure winning. Yeah, it's great when it's fantastic football, but it's more about the winning. It's about getting to the final every single year. If you win the league, that is what is expected, not cause for grand celebration. So so in conclusion, I think it's important to have an amount of perspective. You know, with regards to Liverpool's recent success, they have won the Champions League. They have won a Premier League title. They have won the Club World Cup over two seasons. It's an incredible, impressive achievement. I'm not taking that away. And I'm not taking away the emotion and how good, if you are a Liverpool fan, it felt. To just have that, you know, that, that, those bricks, that weight lifted off of you. I'm a Red Sox fan. I've gone through that in 2004. And it is. It's a fantastic team. It's a pleasure to watch both on television and in person for myself. You know, Jurgen Klopp is a fantastic manager. And he's challenged City and Pep Guardiola in a way that no other contemporary manager or team has been able to, at a domestic and European level, over an extended period of time. But what I think has been missed through the celebrations of the title drought being smashed... It's the extent of the expertise at executive level, ownership, you know, the director of football, you know, the at a backroom coaching level. Klopp has every tool imaginable. He's had time, he's had the fan base, the political capital that the fan base has given. You know, you've got the stadium, the training ground, you know, you have the reputation, you have the history. You know, what more could a manager desire in an age? where stratification has now opened up unimaginable possibilities for points and dominance. You know, it's no surprise that they've had success. I think the, the only remaining question is really how Klopp will maintain this team, or rebuild it once age, decline, or staleness sets in. Because, really, at Dortmund, it never got to the stage where it needed a rebuild. You know, but effectively he was drained, the players were drained because of the defeats to Bayern Munich in the Champions League final and in the league. And the whole thing just ran out of steam. And, you know, they had that horrible kind of season where it just, nothing went well. They're in the bottom half of the table. They did improve a bit, but it was just, you saw it was the end. And so that's the question mark. Because, you know, mine's this is going to be the first time in his managerial career that he's really going to have to rebuild or re-energize effectively on the fly. And so these therefore these peak seasons are actually doubly important. Because we don't have a track record to to indicate how he will do so. You know, the point is, you know, Pep Guardiola's never really done this. This is the first time even with sort of Man City where this is the first kind of time in his manager career where he's having to change things a little bit. In other words, you know, he's never been around long enough. Whereby, at least with Ferguson, you knew that he had done this year after year, you know, team after team, he'd been able to rebuild. That was a skill set. You know, even Wenger, to a certain extent, had, you know, there had been a, you know, the difference between the Invincibles and the team that first won the double in 97 98, they were different outfits. You know the potentiality for decline and staleness is present. You know we've seen indications you know since they've won the title. There are some red flags there. You know all of the bits that you needed for an amazing season, you know that would have replicated what Manchester United did were in place. You had the squad depth, you had lack of major injuries. You had declined by all major rivals, you had cluster luck, you've had a great start, you had a brilliant defense, you had a balanced explosive attack, you had the league wrapped up before Christmas, you'd won in Europe, you were already the European champions, you'd proven yourself on that stage. And yet, there's an undeniable sense of what if? You know, could this Liverpool team have gone undefeated? Undefeated with a record points total, a double, a triple? You know, but it's a collective failure. It's one between local, familiar fans whose ecstasy and longing, you know, clouded their ability to discern how good this team could be. You know, a failure of the Bram fan and whose desire for authenticity, you know, ranged into performative joy rather than their important role as a vanguard for driving success. And most importantly, it's a failure of political will and imagination from Jürgen Klopp. He chose the path of least resistance, over-focused on the league title that was never in any reasonable doubt. It's led to a joyous season at Anfield, but for me, it's one that is an unfulfilled B-grade, rather than an exemplary A-star grade that it could have been. Thank you for listening.